Welcome to the podcast, The Objects That Made Us. I'm Amy Sim. In every episode of this podcast, I will be inviting a guest to share with us a personal object and the story behind it. These stories will offer glimpses of Singapore's past, weaving together a tapestry of our collective memories. Today we have Aisha on our show and Aisha is a tuition teacher and today she has this special object that she would like to share with us. Hi everyone, I'm Aisha and today it's my pleasure to have you here with me in my home and I'd like to share about my trusted red Prudence Saga. Wow, so it's a car and this must be the largest object in our 20 episodes. So thank you very much, Aisha. Can you tell us why would you like to share with us the story behind your Protong Saga? My Protong Saga has a very special place in my heart. I bought it in 2008, just a few months after, as an adult, I was in my late 30s. And I had just passed my driving license after four attempts. And it was the sheer need of the family. I've got little children back then and I need to ferry around despite also the job as a tuition teacher and I have to move around. And public transport wasn't working anymore. My timings were all over the place. I moved myself in the mountain to get a driving license and shortly after that ran into the store and said okay this is it i'm gonna get the cheapest car that i can find so why did you choose protong saga because i think a lot of singaporeans would tend to go for the korean cars or Mm -hmm. the japanese cars why protong saga for you you're right earlier i mentioned it was the cheapest car it's actually not the cheapest car there was at that time in 2008 the cherry qq and such However, my choice, I believe, at the end of the day was really driven by my experience with my cousin. She's a maternal cousin, one of the oldest, the one that I had extensive experience growing up with because she was living with my maternal grandma. Back then, late 80s, early 90s, her late father bought her a car. She was transitioning and she was thinking of becoming a housing agent and you know how you know you'd have to have your clients with you and move from place to place and that's it she's always had a driving license but she was without a car and her father retired and he gifted her a fully paid car proton saga hatchback brown in color i remember that he paid it in full with his cpf money so that was it you know in my teens in my early adulthood that was where we spent all of our time, in fact. Right? She used to come pick me up from school. I used to be with her and my auntie, my grandmother had passed on by then. And with her son, because she was a single mother by then, earning her keep, trying to put it all together, caring for my auntie, her mom. And she really used all of her talents and all of her abilities to the best of means and it was at Proton Saga through that my interaction with her I'm always following her to home viewings and meeting clients and she was a fast driver she was oh her need for speed <laughs> but I realized that no matter how hard she pressed the pedal or how fast she made her turns Proton was really a stable car 
it gave very little trouble. I thought she sometimes abused her car. Yeah, it chugged along. So I thought, you know, when it was time for me to buy the car, it is going to be a reliable car. Yeah. So you've seen how Proton Saga worked for her. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I saw that. Uh-huh. And so were you very, very close with your cousin? And how did your cousin have this influence on you? Ah, you're right. At the beginning of it all, when I was a little girl, I remembered I had this love-hate relationship with her. She was this flamboyant, big-haired lady, full-on makeup, really fashionable. She had this job as a personal secretary, I believe, at that time when she was in her early adulthood and I was still a little girl. And I will always watch her put on her makeup. She has this assortment of things right in front of her. It's an entire makeup drawer and, and all. And I did ask her, can I just like try that? And she said, you don't ever touch that. If you do, I am going to slaughter you. And I was like, hmm, one of these days. I am going to get my hands on those little things and figure that out. It was that she was always, you know, pretty much disciplinarian whenever I'm at my grandma's. And she says, you know, that's how your mom raised me. And I was like, eh? So it looked like when she was younger, she lived in my late grandmother's big house. And of course, my mother was her little disciplinarian. And she thought that, hmm, I can do the same with her daughter. So growing up, it was always like that. She was always telling me what to do, this and that, the do's and the don'ts. But if there was anything that I really, till this day, am thankful for, and I think that was also the reason why she was a cousin that I continued being close to was because of her ability to really speak and write in English really well. She's one of my cousins who could do that. You know, back then in the 80s, there were very few people who could speak other than the vernacular, right? Other than your mother tongue. So she greatly influenced me for the love of the language and eventually my love for writing. I have to attribute being fluently conversant in both English and my mother tongue because of her. And that meant that, you know, when you could converse in English, there were a lot more things that I could express as I grew up and become exposed to things in the outside world. And there were times when it was just best to just say it in English and not everyone could understand you in that manner. I mean, certainly not my parents. We were pretty much a Malay-speaking family. So, you know, in turn, it became clear that she was someone who would become my confidant and she was really a role model. And what I loved about her is that fierce, independent spirit and she knew the ways of the world Mm. and she was not afraid of speaking her mind we could agree to disagree and you know eventually of course she understood that I was growing and it's not just the big sister telling the little girl what to do we were always bouncing off ideas and what is your age difference I believe maybe 12 13 years apart and I was adulting and she was already married her marriage was not really working out she was going through some tough times like I mentioned earlier she was a single mother I saw that she never did give up. She knew that there was worth, regardless of what happens to you in life, but who you are does not change. And that was what I saw, that constancy. And that was very magnetic. And I was drawn to that. I was like, this must be really hard because, you know, in the 80s, late 90s, I mean, people don't talk openly about failed marriages and such. But she was very open. She was eventually when she became a single mom and she became a divorcee, you know, in the Malay language, the word gender is very taboo. But she says, so what? 
Yeah, I am a mother. I am a daughter. I'm fiercely doing my very best for my child and my mom. That's just that. Yeah, so your relationship with your cousin seems to shift as you get into adulthood. You know, when you were a little girl, she was this like big sister telling you what to do, very bossy. But then as you grew older, mm -hmm. she became your confidant. And what are some of the things you talk to her about? And, you know, how does that help you to become who you are today? I mean, we spoke about many things, boys, money. We spoke about one of the things that bugged me back then was my identity because I was raised in a very strict Muslim family and there's always that when are you going to put the tudong? When are you going to put on the tudong? When are you going to put on the tudong? Right? I was in my university days back then and so there was no uniform so to speak so it's time if you want to put on the hijab you could but I didn't want to do that because at that time I felt like if I were to change the way I dress because I am not really your typical docile Malay young lady who is the pure and resolute. <laughs> well, I was this crazy girl who, you know, wanted to climb the mountain, fall off a cliff. I wanted to do all those things and I was not confident that donning the hijab would allow me to do that. Because back then, I was living a lot closer to her place. And there were a lot of nights I just would make up an excuse, not go home and just bunk at her place. And in the dead of night, son sleeping, auntie sleeping, and we would be on the floor on the mattress and we would be just talking. And I asked her about who God is, what is he, you know, why are there so many rules? You know, so there were all these very taboo and very difficult questions that I would not in a million years <laughs> ever brought to my parents for fear of them, you know, calling me, uh, you know, whatever. So it was with my cousin that I could bounce off all of these ideas. And eventually, I also saw her from that lady who was just so beautiful and, you know, her hair, she's got the most gorgeous, fair faucet hair. You know who that person is. She had this beautiful hair and one day she also decided to don the hijab. That was how it all started. I said, why would you want to do that? And, you know, what does all this mean? And coincided with her own journey, her own inward spiritual journey. She said, this is something that you see on the outside, but this is not it. You know, all these changes that took place within her and she felt that she was ready to put this on. And so those were our conversations. I mean, we had mindless conversations, of course, but those things, they stand out. Mm -hmm. yeah, that, so you then put on the hijab as well. So eventually I realized, yeah, because even though her outfit has changed, she wasn't as glamorous as she used to be and all that. She had a lot of other things. She was just like fast fashion. But, you know, she's not the much. I saw in reality that the hijab does not change who you are. I didn't stop her from driving backwards in Johor Bahru. Oh my goodness me, she went into a wrong, she took a wrong turn in the lane. And then she realized, oh, she's facing oncoming traffic. And this, she was like a fierce driver who just drove backwards and found a way to do a U-turn backwards. And I was like, oh my God. And I realized, yeah, that's her. That's her, that's a crazy driver that she is. She's still that, even though her outfit has changed. And that gave me confidence that I can be who I want to be or am while performing my responsibilities as a Muslim. 
So I can imagine your cousin in her hijab, driving Proton Saga, <laughs> going about doing her things. And this image must have left a very strong impression in you. And so much so that you are encouraged to buy a Proton Saga and Proton Saga becomes very much part of your own identity, your own journey. Can you tell us a little bit more about why do you have this strong attachment to the Proton mm, Saga? Yeah, that's the right word, a strong attachment. You know, it was 2008, right, when I first bought this car. And when I found the wheels, it was very symbolic. It was as if finally I felt that independence. It was petrifying. I mean, I failed four times to get a license. Because I think at the end of the day, I was not in a happy place. I was in a marriage that clearly was not working, hasn't been working for a long time. Making that move to buy that car, it's a huge financial commitment. It was a huge risk, though, you know, I knew that this is going to give me that ability to work more efficiently because I can get to places faster at the same time, caring for my children who are still actually quite young back then. My son is only still about two. The year after that, I decided that I was going to leave the marriage. And I felt, you know, there were many times in that car, some people call it a tin can, because, you know, no one's driving a Proton Saga. It's a Malaysian car. But, oh my goodness, you know, many hard decisions and tears, the fears. It was in that car that I felt safe. Because there were many times, you know, I have to center myself at the car park to ensure that I can come up, be okay. And it all happens in that car. So sometimes, you know, it's just not a car to me. It's like my grotto. It's a place that I feel like I can be me, safe with my thoughts, that I can calm myself down again and then go face the world. So that's my journey, Saga. I do so many things in it. <laughs> I mean, not just the sad, you know, things, but oh my goodness me, there were things like one time we actually squeezed 11 primary four kids, including my daughter, because they all wanted to visit their chegu on Hari Raya. And one had fallen just coming to my place, taking the SBS bus. And I was like, no, this is not going to happen, girls. We're going to get you safely to Chegu's house. And he said, no, we want to be together. And I was like, okay, we're going to squeeze in the car. And that's it. I brought 11 girls. They were all so tiny. They were on the floor. They were on each other's laps. And we drove like that three minutes to the Chegu's house. So that's what Saga did. It has been the car that I married all of my siblings. I've got four of them. Three of them, their wedding day, their wedding dowries, their gifts. Everything was transported in that saga. So you could imagine. It's a lorry. It's everything. <laughs> so that saga, I mean, it's been 15 years now. You took it to holidays as well, right? Oh, completely. So I couldn't afford plane tickets and all that. The hotel room would be close to busting the budget. So it was that. We commuted to Johor. We commuted to Port Dixon, to KL in this trusted little car and I remember being so petrified that was one of actually one of the first things that I did the moment I got the keys to the car I asked a friend if he could teach me how to drive and traverse the north-south highway because I was like my god you know I can't do this and that was it so you know he drove in front and we communicated by phone and I was like okay I'm behind no, no, don't go too fast a little bit more so that was it I did so many firsts with this car 
That's amazing. <laughs> so the car is, embodies all your life, yes, your yes. memories, all your my decisions. My my decisions, wow. my memories, my good times, my bad times. It was in my trusted little saga. So, mm. you know, I recall one time, because the student, you know, we were talking about aspirations and purpose and goals. And he challenged me. He said, well, you're telling me about all of these, right, to get my life in order. Yeah, was it all you wanted? You only wanted a proton saga? And I was like, oh my God, I was really taken aback by this 10-year-old's response. And I was like, because this car is not a luxury car, because this car is not a status symbol. Is that what you mean by me not walking the talk? So I was indeed taken aback. I mean, I've never occurred to me that this is how one would be measured. I mean, yeah, there are people who take pride in what they ride, they drive, but I needed something that could bring me from point A to point B in a reliable way, in a manner that I feel confident in. And I thought that was, yeah. So I remembered my first reaction was I was vehemently angry. I was so angry. I was like, oh my God, oh, the audacity, how dare you? I remembered I was quiet. And I think he realized, oops, I shouldn't have said that. I told him, I said, this is a car that I could drive within my means. Yes, some people measure the success with what they have, but I'd like to think that I am more than that. I am more than the car that I drive, the house that I live in. It is always about the relationships. Yeah, especially with, you know, all the relationships that you cultivated so, through the car, through right? Through the car, yeah. So I've extended the COE for full 10 years. I'm doing my very best to take very good care of it so that it lasts. Yeah, and when the day comes for me to say goodbye to Saga, I probably need therapy. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> so has your Saga broken down on you before? Yes, oh my God. The worst was the engine is really good. I mean, I would have to say for a car that's 15 years of age, the mechanic cost is really, really acceptable. It's really reasonable. But during COVID, oh my goodness me, the door handle to the driver's seat, it malfunctioned. And with the lockdown, it was difficult trying to get a mechanic. That was one. And finally, when it was okay for us to go and get it fixed, I went to, I think, four, was it five mechanics and no one has a handle for me. The Korean models will not fit. And I was like, no, you mean you don't have a handle for this? And it was like, no, sorry, we don't. Um, looks like you'll just have to wait because you'll have to get this ordered and then it will be sent to Singapore and then we'll fit you with the correct handle. And I was like, okay. So how much would that be? And they said, oh, $200. Remember, I had to wait for a whole entire month. Never mind that. I was climbing through side door, back door. And finally, when it came, mine is a red car. It was a black handle and it was $200. And eventually, when the doors opened and I contacted my trusted Johor mechanic, he says, it's 60 ringgit. It would have been 20 Singapore dollars that became $200 because of COVID. So yeah, that one, I was a little bit sad. But otherwise, it's really a very economical car. So you're still driving your car now and with a 
blue handle on your so red So I have board? a black handle a black on the handle. side. Yes, I do have that black handle. Eventually, the other side broke down and that time, and you know, it was already post-COVID and I told the mechanic, okay, we even it out. So right black and the other side black with the two red handles at the back. So yes. So I'm sure you can find your car in the car park. There's no problem to, <laughs> to take a no wrong car. Detecting my car. It's a car with multicolored handles. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, I feel like I need to get a sponsorship from Poton Saga for this episode of our podcast. <laughs> yes, podcast brought to you by Proton Saga. Yeah, this is, I don't know. I mean, some ladies have handbags and, you know, nice jewelry. But Saga has a very, very, very special place in my heart. Yeah. Thank you so much, Aisha. Just to say this episode is not brought to you by Proton Saga. <laughs> Thank you very much, Aisha. You're most welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me today. Thank you. The Objects That Made Us is produced and hosted by Amy Sim and Yap Xiao Chong. Music and sound design by Mandrik Tan. Translated by Lim Wenwen and Lim Hui Sin. This podcast is made possible with the support of the National Heritage Board. Thank you for listening. <laughs>